Hello, thriller and adventure fans, and welcome to James Lindholm's Into a Canyon Deep, the first book in the Chris Black action-adventure series. I'm Jess, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. I'll be introducing you to each of our episodes of James Lindholm's exciting undersea adventure. The action takes place in Central California's Carmel-by-the-Sea, home to a submarine canyon that extends from the deep sea right up to within 300 feet of shore. The setting alone is amazing. I should know because that's where I'm from. The way Lindholm depicts my hometown brings back so many memories of my childhood. It's been such a treat to listen to his description of places that were so meaningful to me growing up. But what really gets me excited is the seamless blend of action, adventure, and real-world science. Here's what's going on. Joe Rothberg, troubled for most of his young life, is in way over his head. The people he's been dealing with will stop at nothing to get their way. All he can hope for is that marine biologist Chris Black will understand his message and make things right. For Graham, your encouragement and early reading suggestions launched me on a lifetime of adventure. Acknowledgements. Field scientists are, as a rule, an irreverent and sarcastic group of hardcore human beings. If you don't currently know any such people, I strongly encourage you to seek them out. I've been extraordinarily lucky to work with many such people over the course of my career, and Into a Canyon Deep would not have been possible without the generous support of several of them, including Peter Oster, Carrie Bretz, and Andrew de Vogelare. Author's Note Though Dr. Chris Black and his CMEX team do not exist outside of the printed page, the process they follow to conduct scientific research in the deep subtitle is very much based in reality, including the use of remotely operated vehicles, ROVs, for working deep below the effective depth of scuba divers. Faculty, staff, and students working at institutions around the world regularly confront challenges of sampling in a marine environment that frequently doesn't cooperate. I hope that Into a Canyon Deep will give you some insight into the endeavor of marine exploration. It is also interesting to note that fact often mirrors fiction. While the main plot line for Chris Black's first adventure is entirely fictional, not long after I completed the story, it was reported in the local news that a similar discovery was made on land. You can look it up once you finish the story. Life-threatening violence aside, the southern Monterey Bay area that is depicted in these pages is definitely worth a visit when you have the opportunity. In my role as a practicing research scientist, I regularly refer to the Bay as the greatest living laboratory in the world for the study of temperate ecosystems. We have tide pools, kelp forests, deep canyons all accessible from shore, along with the invertebrates, fishes, and marine mammals that live in those environments. It is, in a very real sense, the Blue Serengeti, a term that my colleague Dr. Barbara Block 
first coined. 1. Spinning into the wake of the receding fishing vessel Lizzie J., Joe Rothberg's many wounds bled steadily. A blue bioluminescent aura enveloped him as the movement of his sinking body agitated thousands of small planktonic organisms. Only minutes before, he'd watched the sleeves of his favorite sweatshirt slowly wick salt water up his partially submerged arms as he dangled from a half-inch nylon line on the boat's bow. Hanging by his broken right leg, Joe's head was only inches from the cool ocean's surface. He knew it was supposed to be pretty deep out there above the Carmel Canyon. The captain had said more than 2,000 feet. 2,000 feet. He saw and smelled the beach close by, even in the pitch black of the moonless spring night. Maybe if I yell, he hoped, someone will help. Maybe someone will call the police or the Coast Guard. Joe had tried to focus beyond the steady drum of the pulse beating in his ears tried to remember the tricks his counselor had taught him when he was a kid, tricks to control the jumble of random ideas bouncing around in his head. Identify what I'm feeling. Identify what I'm feeling. Identify what I'm... Fuck, what am I doing out here? The dark waters didn't respond. He kept coming back to the fact that he'd been helping dump toxic waste into the ocean. Sarah is going to kill me if she finds out, he thought. Not cool. Joe had felt the disappointment of Sarah. His parents, even his old counselor, Margaret Black, more intensely than the growing strain on his broken leg. His high school glory days were long gone. At least that was what he had realized when, two weeks earlier, he'd come home to find Kevin O'Grady wearing camouflage pants, an expensive suede jacket, and what looked like military boots, sitting in the living room talking with Sarah. The baby was resting in the bouncy seat beside the couch. They'd been sitting on the same, couch, not across from each other as Joe would have if he'd been visiting someone else's wife. He knew that Sarah and Kevin had dated back in high school. In fact, there'd been rumors that Kevin was the father of Sarah's first baby, the one she aborted. What hurt Joe most was what he'd seen in the first seconds after he came in the front door. Sarah had been smiling. There was a light in her eyes that he hadn't noticed in years. What he wouldn't give to see that light again, and to be the reason for it. Instead, he saw the light go out when he entered. O'Grady's sighs. The living room appeared to shrink in size with him in it. And the fact that he was seriously mean kept Joe's pain and irritation at bay. Even if Joe had wanted to make some kind of point that day, to assert his husbandly authority, to try to earn back some respect from his wife, he knew it wouldn't have mattered. O'Grady could beat the shit out of him, no problem. The next surprise came when O'Grady had turned to Joe that day and offered him a job. Sure, most of the spiel had been total crap offered up for Sarah's benefit. O'Grady had made up some story about a business partner needing help at night in a new warehouse in neighboring Seaside. The job had brought Joe offshore for the eighth time in the past two weeks. He'd been supervising the disposal of toxic waste. Not so much supervising as standing around, actually. Joe's primary responsibility had been to match each barrel with a list O'Grady had given him and to make sure that each one made it over the side before the boat headed back in. O'Grady's boss apparently wanted a white man overseeing the dumping operations, even if that white man had far less experience with this type of work than everyone else on board. 
Though O'Grady's business partner, if that's what he was, hired dozens of Mexican, Asian, and African-American workers, down deep, Joe had figured, he was still just a racist dick. Joe's regrets about working for a guy like that and dumping waste into the ocean to boot had grown with each trip down from Monterey. Two nights ago, on his seventh trip, he realized that he had to do something. He couldn't quit. He needed the money too badly. And he didn't want to call the cops since he didn't want to get arrested. And anyway, he'd overheard O'Grady talking about the fact that his boss owned the cops. So that was a dead end. But he could try to alert someone to what was going on out there. After some contemplation, a solution had come to him. Earlier in the evening, he had stopped at the FedEx store in Monterey before coming down to the dock. He felt much better about everything after that stop. He would take his money from tonight and be done with it. He would never have to think about Kevin O'Grady again. Tonight was perfectly calm, which Joe knew was unusual for this time of year, as strong northwesterly winds tended to blow hard day and night. So instead of supervising, he'd spent much of the time leaning on the rail, enjoying the lights shimmering on the glassy ocean's surface as cars went speeding down California Highway 1. Below him, little bursts of blue light formed and then exploded just under the surface like fireworks. Bioluma something or other, he was told. An accidental cough from one of the Vietnamese crewmen as they approached him, coming at him from the stern, alerted him. Joe noted that all the evening's barrels had been dumped, and then he realized that the five crewmen were carrying clubs. Oh, shit. Had they figured out that he had betrayed them? Not waiting for an answer, Joe moved as fast as his fat ass allowed him, climbing out onto the narrow rail that surrounded the boat and shimmying along the outside of the wheelhouse as he moved toward the bow. His chubby, sweaty fingers moved quickly along the wooden trim while his old Converse high tops kept pace below them. The lifeboat mounted on the bow might be his chance to escape. The relief Joe experienced upon reaching the bow ahead of his pursuers was short-lived. O'Grady, whom Joe hadn't realized was on board tonight, came forward from the other side of the wheelhouse carrying his aluminum baseball bat. End of the line, Joey boy, O'Grady said. No loose ends. At that point, Joe, still panting from his exertion, had given in to the inevitable. There was no way he was going to get out of this. No way. His shoulders slumped and he made no effort to dodge either the incoming bat or the kick that followed. O'Grady had obviously not waited to hear the splash, nor had he looked over the side. Had he done so, he'd have seen Joe's body snagged on a line that was running from the bow of the fishing boat to the stern. Joe felt the boat's powerful engines come to life through the barnacle-encrusted hull before he heard them. Could he make it all the way back to port in this position, he wondered? Maybe he could sneak away once the boat was tied up back at the fish pier. As the boat began the return trip to Monterey, the bow lifted and then dipped into the oncoming swells. The first swell to brush the hull grabbed Joe from the line and swept him aft toward the stern of the boat. The chill of the 55-degree water barely registered as Joe was briefly free of the boat. The surge of adrenaline accompanying his release had armored him against the pain of being dragged along the weathered hull. Joe had had just enough time to consider his situation before he'd been drawn under the boat as he approached the stern. Within seconds, he was sucked into the portside propeller, which had been moving at full throttle, 
The propeller had ripped open Joe's left thigh, nearly severed his right arm, and sliced deeply into his scalp. Adrift and sinking fast, the last synapse of Joe's dying brain fired in an expression of hope that Chris Black, someone he'd not spoken to in over twenty years, would know what to do with the package Joe had sent him. Two. Chris Black was not thinking about packages, not thinking about work, not thinking about much at all other than his dad. For each of the past five years, Chris had come to this rocky promontory at the northwestern edge of Point Lobos State Nature Reserve to privately acknowledge the anniversary of his father's death. Point Lobos, named by Spanish explorers after the abundant California sea lions or wolves of the sea found there, served as the southern boundary of Carmel Bay. Looking to the west across the wind-blown swells of the Pacific from his perch on the rocks, the sheer vastness of the Earth's largest ocean quieted Chris's overworked brain. He knew that the only thing between him and the Chinese mainland was 12,000-odd miles of deep blue sea, more than half of the circumference of the globe. But looking at it on a map didn't do that distance justice. One had to see it firsthand. With a research cruise starting in two days, there were plenty of things that Chris, the chief scientist for the cruise, knew he should be thinking about. But tradition dictated that he be at this place on this day, regardless of what else was happening in life. Wearing jeans, a fleece-lined jacket, and a university baseball cap, neither the strong northwest wind nor the periodically cascading foam from the crashing surf below bothered him much. In his late thirties, Chris had the physique of an athlete, toned by action rather than gym workouts. Though at six foot two, Chris wasn't huge, a certain energy was emanating from him that made him seem bigger than he actually was. The lines on his face and the gray streaks in his otherwise dark hair only added to his overall character, or so he'd been told on a couple of occasions. He'd also been told that he looked like Agent Mulder on The X-Files, but the only agent from that TV show he cared about was Scully. Chris was a native of nearby Carmel-by-the-Sea. His family had been stable, and though not particularly wealthy for the area, they didn't want for much. His father, first a military fighter pilot, then a commercial airline pilot, and ultimately an executive for United Airlines, had been a largely stern but fair influence on Chris's life. Dad. Normally, memories of his father were conflicted. A complicated mosaic of memories both bad and good. Andrew Black had instilled in Chris at an early age a strong notion of right and wrong that clearly derived from a worldview shaped by war. That installation had come at a cost, however, with countless holidays marred by barking orders instead of kind words, homework sessions more appropriate for boot camp than third grade, and generally unpredictable grumpiness that always kept the family on edge. On the other hand, by teaching Chris to swim and later to scuba dive even before formal certification agencies were doing so, Andrew had inadvertently solidified Chris's career trajectory before Chris was ten years old. In later years, when reporters or interested students pressed for an explanation as to why Chris spent so much time in the water, or why his interest in marine biology endured over the years, his memory returned like a reflex to his earliest childhood. He remembered many early June days, like this one, 
when no one in the right mind would enter the cold water of southern Monterey Bay without a wetsuit, except Chris and his dad. They spent hours over the years frolicking in the surf in their bathing suits, clinging to an inflatable raft while pretending to be castaways from a pirate ship. Chris could remember being so cold that his fingers had stopped working and he couldn't feel his feet, but at the same time he hadn't wanted to be anywhere else in the world. Movement down to his left alerted him to a man and a young boy climbing along the rocks close to the water. Probably tourists, Chris figured. The red-faced man carried a gut that was seriously taxing a bright red Carmel t-shirt that no self-respecting local would be caught dead wearing. His jeans weren't faring much better, and he was wearing flip-flops. It was no small hike to make it all the way out to the point with a child that was probably only five or six years old. The poor guy's discomfort from the exertion was palpable even at a distance, and wearing flip-flops would not have helped anything. Chris was surprised the flip-flops had made it as far as they had. The blonde child, wearing a blue t-shirt emblazoned with a Superman logo and red shorts, leapt from rock to rock with more facility than the man. Not every step was sure-footed, and there were quite a few loud warnings from the man, who was likely the kid's father, but the indomitable spirit of childhood won out. Chris smiled at the thought that the kid was probably very good at video games and other digital challenges, but was nevertheless fearless out in the world of real physical dangers. Chris returned his gaze to the open ocean and wanted to refocus his mind on his own dad. But the father-son dynamic playing out in the present won out over rehashing those of the past. He looked back down to see the boy was now several feet ahead of the man, frenetically moving over the rocks just above the high tide line without watching the water. If he wasn't careful, one of the coming swells was going to take him out. Come on, kid, Chris urged silently as he felt his own muscles tense. Turn around. Never turn your back on the ocean. Hey, kid, Chris yelled as he stood up, hoping at least to get the father's attention. Watch out for that swell! Too late. The next swell rolled in, an amorphous blue-green predator stalking its prey. It reached the boy and effortlessly lifted him off the rocks, drawing him back into the water. He quickly disappeared below the surface. The father screamed, but Chris couldn't hear what he said. Chris removed his smartphone and wallet, placing them safely in a crack in the rock behind him. The kid was going to be history if someone didn't get to him very soon. He turned and prepared to make the ten-foot drop to the water, waiting for the next surge of water and trying to keep his eyes on the boy, who was back at the surface for the moment and struggling. The next swell came, and Chris leapt, feet first and shoes on. There were too many dangers beneath the surface to enter headfirst, and though shoes would make swimming more difficult, against the rocks they would be invaluable. He hit the water and immediately opened his arms into a T position to halt his momentum and to keep himself at the surface. The frigid water instantly closed around his chest, drawing away his breath. Chris knew that the 55-degree water was not the most immediate problem. Though water wicked away body heat at more than 32 times faster than air, he planned to be out of the water well before hypothermia had a chance to set in. The real threat came from being right in the impact zone, as the swells from the North Pacific came crashing in against the barnacle-encrusted rocks. Two quick overhand strokes carried Chris over to the boy. The boy's eyes were wide with panic, and his lips were already turning blue. 
Chris grabbed him with his left arm while trying to get purchase on the rocks with his right. It's okay, big guy. I've got you. Let's get you out of here. The boy was surprisingly light. Chris realized that he might be able to swing him up to the father if the ocean cooperated. No sooner had that thought crossed his mind than the swell receded. Chris held on briefly, but realizing that the water level was dropping too fast and too low, he released his grip and let the current take them with it. The boy screamed, probably thinking that they were going to be sucked out to sea. It's all right, Chris said. We'll be out of here. No! Chris was preparing to ride the next swell up high enough to pass the kid back to his father when he realized that he was jumping off the rocks, apparently to try and save them. The father hit the water awkwardly, arms flailing, just as the next swell came in, and he dropped like a rock. Chris held fast to the boy and squared his feet against the rocks. As the waves swept in, Chris used his leg strength to keep them off the rocks while leaning back to create less resistance against the oncoming water, pulling the boy briefly underwater. He could feel the boy struggling, but held firm. Popping his head back above the surface, Chris scanned the area for the father. The man was floating at the surface a few feet away. He wasn't moving, and he was bleeding from a gash across the forehead. Chris realized that his range of good options was rapidly shrinking. The rock wall was steep and high as far as he could see in either direction, offering no obvious point to climb out of the water. He decided to get the boy out before returning for the father. If he tried to rescue them both simultaneously, all three of them would surely die. Side-stroking toward the lowest point on the cliff a few feet away, keeping the boy's head above water, Chris spotted two men climbing down toward the water's edge. The two men formed a human chain, placing the lower of the two just within reach of Chris. Chris once again timed his approach with the swell and rode the surging water up the face of the cliff. Using his feet to climb as high as possible, he grabbed the boy with both hands and thrust him upward to the waiting arms of the passerby. Seeing the man grab the boy, Chris launched himself off the rock with his feet and began to search for the father. Fewer than ten minutes had passed, but he could feel the cold water zapping him of energy. He had to find the father fast, before they were both crushed against the rocks. Chris shivered uncontrollably as he backtracked to where he had seen the father last. He was starting to feel pain from cuts on his arms that he must have sustained earlier without realizing it. He leaned back and tread water for a minute to collect himself for one final push. He judged the probability of success to be very low, and he was beginning to wonder if he'd get out himself. And then something bumped him from behind. Chris spun around to find the father floating behind him, face down and not breathing. Chris flipped him over and supported his head out of the water. He gave two short rescue breaths but struggled to keep the man's face above the surface while doing so. He needed flotation, his cold-addled mind drifting. Chris looked around him to see what, if any, options he had remaining. The swells kept coming in, but he and the father were now far enough away from the rocks that being crushed was not an immediate concern. He twice looked past a large yellow jacket floating next to him. The third time he looked at it, he also heard the men yelling down to him from the rocks above. They were yelling something like, Grab the jacket, which Chris found interesting since there was a jacket right next to him. He looked at it more closely. 
It looked like someone had tied off the sleeves, neck, and waist to make a rudimentary flotation device. Brilliant. A large swell pushed Chris and the man toward the rocks. When Chris's left shoulder slammed into the barnacle-encrusted rock wall, the pain electrified him long enough to break his stupor. He turned the man to the right, grabbing the yellow jacket and placing it underneath the man's torso. Chris then began to kick as fast as he could. With shoes on, he found the flutter kick normally used by breast strokers to be the most efficient means of propulsion. He swam in 30-second increments, stopping only to give the man two rescue breaths before proceeding onward. Later, in the relative comfort of the nearby ranger station, the two men who'd been on the cliff above described to Chris how amazed they were that he managed the ten-minute swim around the corner and into the only protected inlet within hundreds of yards. Chris listened as he warmed up with a detached interest, for he remembered none of it. To hear the two men tell it, Chris had rescued the father and his son from certain death. Both were on their way to the hospital, cold and bruised, but alive. Chris could only smile and wonder if his own father had been watching from somewhere out there. 3. We're going to need a bigger boat. Dr. Chris Black smiled as he recalled Chief Brody's timeless words from Jaws. It was two days later, and he'd slipped back into his role of chief scientist aboard the research vessel McGregor. A large male white shark swam slowly off screen. Its ominous black eye had briefly looked right into the camera, but the shark appeared to be unaffected by the presence of the Sea View, a remotely operated vehicle, or ROV. Chris leaned back to turn down the volume on the smartphone speakers behind his head. He was once again wearing jeans and a dark blue fleece emblazoned with the university's logo. That was a big white shark. Farewell and adieu to my dear Spanish ladies, hummed Robert Mac Johnson, the pilot of the ROV, sticking with the Jaws theme. He was wearing a spotless one-piece blue worksuit with ROV team stenciled across the back complimented by a well-loved khaki baseball cap with a badly frayed bill. Nodding toward Chris, Mac added, Farewell and adieu, my ladies of Spain. We've got something else on sonar, large, directly ahead, about 15 meters out. Nap time's over. I haven't napped since you made us watch Waterworld again, Chris replied, still thinking about the shark. This was deeper than he had seen white sharks before this close to shore and it was still pretty early for them to begin arriving on the central coast. We've definitely got to bring more movies out with us on these cruises. Waterworld was epic, way ahead of its time, Max said as he maneuvered the ROV into position in front of a huge piled boulder reef located halfway up the Carmel Canyon, 600 feet below the McGregor. Filming at sea like that was hardcore. The three graduate students, Matt, Travis, and Marisa, sitting behind Mac and Chris, looked at each other incredulously. Though it was sunny outside, the group was confined to the McGregor's ROV lab, or Mission Control, a darkened 14-by-8-foot windowless room in the interior of the state-of-the-art ship. While windows would have been appreciated by anyone stuck in there, solar glare made watching video difficult, so no windows were provided. When the ROV was in the water, the only illumination in the room came from the six large flat panel screens arrayed on one wall, from the ceiling to the top of the control console. Each displayed the output from one of the Seaview's cameras or sonar. 
It was an often overwhelming view for the uninitiated. Watching six large screens, each capturing one of the ROV's cameras moving over the seafloor 600 feet below at different angles, could be six times more nauseating than a typical boat ride. This was frequently compounded by the fact that the ship itself, subject to swell and wave conditions back up at the surface, would rock in yet another direction altogether. Many a student had come to sea on the McGregor with a desire to master mission control, only to find that the room quickly mastered them, sending them out to the deck rail after just seconds inside. Immediately in front of the screens sat the large, intricate control panel used to operate the ROV. The ROV pilot and the chief scientist sat in comfortable bucket seats with easy access to redundant sets of all controls, including the joysticks used to fly the ROV. Both wore wireless headsets for communicating with the ship's captain on the bridge and with the deck crew at the stern responsible for launch and recovery of the ROV. Behind the pilot and chief scientist, additional scientists, graduate students, and other observers sat in the four slightly less comfortable chairs. This was by design. If the chairs were too comfortable, the alluring relief of sleep would win out every time. Yeah, hardcore. Chris raised his eyebrows as he looked toward the students. Don't let Mac near the movies tonight. Marisa laughed. What was that? Mac asked. A large pile of boulders loomed in front of the sea view. Each boulder was car-sized and covered with tall vase sponges and large multicolored anemones. Interestingly, the lack of light at great depths didn't prevent the sea life from displaying frequently remarkable coloration rivaling coral reefs for pure beauty. Science had yet to explain precisely why animals are so vividly colored at a depth where colors are not visible, but the phenomenon has been documented worldwide. Above the reef swam a massive aggregation of fishes, so dense at points that the reef disappeared behind them. Mac used the joystick control to slow the ROV's approach and gradually began to fly up the side of one of the boulders keeping the ROV a half meter above the boulder's surface. Let's capture all this on video, Chris instructed, nodding to Travis, the graduate student immediately behind him and to his right. Chris Black had made a career out of exploring life beneath the waves, including the notable discovery of prehistoric fishes long since believed to have been extinct, and most recently, the discovery that great white sharks, long believed to be a coastal species, in fact, spent much of their time in the open ocean, often swimming to great depths. His close friend Mac Johnson was a physical and temperamental counterpoint. He wore his hair a bit longer, in a small pirate-like ponytail, which usually poked out from under one of his many baseball caps. Chris was tall and long-limbed, but Mac was a compact five-foot-nine and a dense 190 pounds. His ponytail and perpetual smirk gave him the appearance of youth though he was the same age as Chris. And where Chris was quick to start up a discussion with a stranger, Mac was far less conversational, often even when among friends. It was also common for Mac to play the role of naysayer to Chris's can-do optimist. Where Chris's upbringing had been a picture of stability, Mac's parents had divorced when he was eight years old, leaving Mac the man of the house at an early age. Absent a parental authority figure, Mac had found his own way to stability, and this had, in his own words, left him grumpy most of the time. Mac and Chris had grown up surfing, swimming, and climbing together, as well as pursuing a few less-than-productive activities. 
Following an interminable four years in high school, Chris took off for college and graduate school on the East Coast. Meanwhile, Mac joined the Navy. He took rapidly to his work and earned a coveted spot with the SEALs before an injury brought a premature end to his military career. After a two-year postdoctoral fellowship at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in Massachusetts, Chris returned to the Monterey Peninsula around the same time that Mac finished an electrical engineering degree down south in San Luis Obispo. When a new research center was built on the campus of the university's marine lab in Monterey, Chris and Mac had come together again. Chris Black had been hired by Dr. Peter Lloyd, director of the marine lab, and now of the university's new Center for Marine Exploration, CMEX, as well to lead a team of faculty, staff, and students conducting research on the pressing ecological questions of the day. As many of those questions required diving deeper than the 120 feet that conventional scuba diving allowed, Chris immediately introduced Peter to Mac and initiated a discussion about bringing an ROV program to CMEX. Never one to vacillate, Peter had instantly seen the utility of the proposal and had hired Mac shortly thereafter. Now, five years later, the CMEX was flourishing, even in a tough economic climate. The research vessel, or RV, McGregor, and the ROV, Seaview, formed the foundation of a multi-million dollar research program second to none. And students flocked to the program from all over the world to experience the challenges of working underwater firsthand. There was a growing mythology among CMEX students surrounding Chris and Mac's extracurricular exploits. True or not, the legends made Chris and Mac more intriguing than their academic achievements, drawing even more students to work with them. Four hours later, having transected the main branch of the Carmel Canyon, the sea view came to the surface just offshore of Monterey Beach in southern Carmel. Out of the dark lab and into the noonday sun of the upper deck, the group watched as Mac used a remote console to fly the ROV along the surface back toward the crane at the stern of the boat. Against a backdrop of white sands, cypress trees, and the monastery that gave the beach its name, the ROV was lifted from the water and placed gently on the deck. Chris slapped Mac on the back as music blared in the background. She to death once again, old friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just happy to be here, Mac grumbled. I wasn't happy with the port thruster at the end of the dive, and the HD camera needs to be reoriented a bit. I'll need about 45 minutes to get things rolling before we dive again. Sounds good. Chris didn't give in to his friend's grumpy mood. I'm catching a ride back to shore to give that dog and pony show this afternoon over in Pebble Beach. Gretchen will swap out with me and join you on the next dive. She'll keep Matt and Travis in line. I hope she brings chocolate. It's going to be a long afternoon without chocolate, Max said, sure that this particular point needed no clarification. 4. This doesn't look too fucking good. Not too fucking good at all, Kevin O'Grady remarked. We might be totally screwed here. A black SUV and a black truck were parked side by side facing the ocean in the dirt parking lot at Southern Monastery Beach overlooking Carmel Bay. The smattering of other cars in the lot belonged to recreational scuba divers who had come to test themselves against the world-renowned surf entry. Dubbed Mortuary Beach by the local newspapers, the signs throughout the parking lot depicting recent drownings didn't even merit a glance from the enthusiastic masses. Kevin O'Grady sat behind the wheel of his new truck, watching the ROV recovery through high-powered binoculars. 
He had been watching the McGregor for more than three hours and knew this was going to piss off his boss. I'm going to call this in, he noted aloud, receiving a grunt from the occupant to his right, who was working at emptying a bag of nacho cheese chips. See that orange shit all over your fingers? Don't get any of that in the seat or anything else. And turn down the fucking radio, Kevin said without taking his eyes off the McGregor. His large fingers punched away at his smartphone and waited. His current boss picked up on the first ring. What? I'm watching them recover the robot or whatever they call that thing right now, Kevin explained. They've been underwater for more than three hours, and it looks like they're right where we made our delivery last week. There was a deep, uncomfortable pause on the other end of the line, so Kevin continued. I can see Black standing at the rail, and his friend Johnson is there too. He's supposed to be some kind of tough guy, former SEAL, some shit like that. The others must be students. And a small boat just pulled up with some chick on board. They must have come from Stillwater. Looks like Black is getting in. He has something in a yellow case that he's taking with him. What do you want us to do? Who do you have there with you? Not exactly the A-team, but they should do, Kevin replied, looking over at his colleague who was now tilting the bag of chips up at a 45-degree angle to empty the last remaining crumbs into his mouth. Okay, the boss said slowly. Send a couple of guys over to Stillwater and tell them to follow Black discreetly. You come back out here. We have some things to discuss. Will do. I'll be back shortly. Kevin rolled down the passenger side window of the truck and motioned for the two guys in the SUV to do the same. Boss wants the two of you to go over to Stillwater and follow Black wherever he goes after the boat comes in. Think you can handle that? We're on it. The driver fired up the SUV's engine. He dumped a breakfast sandwich wrapper out the window. Don't fuck this up. Follow him and call me. Do nothing else, understand? Both nodded as the SUV backed up and merged into the northbound traffic on Highway 1, using the turn signal Kevin noted. That pissed Kevin off. First chips all over his seat, and now they're using turn signals? Fucking amateurs. Kevin started up the truck and cranked the radio. He slammed into reverse, directing the truck right into the southbound lane facing directly into a line of cars traveling about 50 to 60 miles per hour. Tires screeched and bumpers crunched on impact as three cars crashed into one another. Goddamn tourists, he offered as he accelerated, without turn signals, into the northbound lane, causing three more cars to veer off the road. Five. Gretchen Clark pulled up alongside the McGregor in one of the C-Max's 27-foot Boston whalers, and she did indeed bring chocolate. Lots of it. She knew from experience that chocolate kept field teams happy in a way that little else could. Chris noted that the whaler was being piloted by Alex Smith, one of several capable C-Max technicians. He was a strapping youngster, and Chris wondered from the rail above if Alex's obvious interest in Gretchen had been picked up on by the recipient of his attention. Hard to tell, since Gretchen kept her cards close to her vest. Gretchen was 29 and about 5 foot 6. She was Chris's right hand at the CMEX. He said frequently that Gretchen held together the entire house of cards, from supplying chocolate to administering grants and analyzing complex ecological data. It was a complicated job description that had only become intricate over the years. Chris had hired Gretchen right out of college at Dartmouth, 
while he was back in Woods Hole to work on a short-term project. When he got the faculty position at the university and headed back to California, she came too. Now in her eighth year on the team, Gretchen had more field experience than many scientists twice her age, and yet she still had the nicest, calmest disposition of anyone Chris had ever met. This latter fact served the CMEX team quite well when gauging a problem's seriousness. One swear word from Gretchen meant it was panic time. Stepping onto the deck of the McGregor, salt water dripping off the bright yellow waterproof CMEX jacket and pants she wore on the ride out, Gretchen pointed methodically at Mac, then Chris, as she stepped on board. Hi, everyone. Mac, I brought lots of chocolate. Chris, here is your transportation. But I need to talk to you for five minutes before you go, if you don't mind. Gretchen passed the chocolate to Matt and Marisa, who handled the bags with serious attention, as if they were valuable specimens. Mac quickly swooped in and snagged a bag of M&Ms before they disappeared. Hang on, I'm taking these before the frenzy begins, he said to no one in particular. Everyone wash your fingers. That's optimal foraging for you. Grumpy, yes, but still optimal, Chris replied, referring to the well-known ecological theory that suggests organisms will forage for food in a way that maximizes their energy intake, while minimizing the energy expended to find and consume that food. Then he turned to Gretchen. What's up, Gretchen? I don't want to bother you, but I've just a couple of signatures and some other things on my list. Are you heading back to campus this afternoon? Gretchen stepped into the adjacent stateroom, and Chris followed. She pulled several pieces of paper out of a waterproof pelican case and laid them out on the desk. I can if necessary. I don't know how long the donor meeting is going to last. It's a bummer that you have to get off the boat in the middle of a cruise to meet with donors. You might miss some exciting stuff. No doubt that I will. But this isn't like the old days when we were at sea more than we were on land. At least, not for me. Working with Peter to keep CMEX funded is my responsibility now. I actually think it's pretty interesting. Talking with non-scientists is refreshing. And talking with non-scientists who are interested in funding us is even more so. Right. So, moving on, it would be great if you could sign these? She slid the forms toward Chris. All right, that's it, Gretchen said as Chris passed back the forms signed. You can hit the, uh, road, as it were. Aye, aye, on my way, Chris replied, slipping on his own waterproof jacket in preparation for the ride. They walked back out onto the deck. Before stepping down into the whaler from the McGregor's stern dive platform, Chris looked back to Gretchen and quickly fired off a few more thoughts. Looks like the wind is coming up. Text me later with your progress, and I'll check in after the dog and pony show with the donors. Gretchen smiled and saluted. From behind the ROV, Max said something that sounded like, Better you than me. I think we can all agree on that. I'll handle the smooth talking. Chris put on a hat and nodded to Alex to shove off. Alex rapidly brought the whaler's dual outboard motors up to full speed, and the boat barely touched the water as it flew across Carmel Bay. Chris's laptop computer, smartphone, and other valuables sat safely in a pelican case under his seat. So he sat back and watched Carmel pass by through the spray. They passed Carmel River Beach, where the Carmel River entered the southern part of the bay. Its steep white sands and crystal blue water evoked images of a tropical paradise. As they rounded Carmel Point, Chris recognized the familiar butterfly house and the copper roof house, both built right down to the water and the latter designed by Frank Lloyd Wright. Carloads of tourists could be seen meandering around the point on Scenic Drive, 
trying valiantly to understand the protocol for driving with seas of bikers and walkers on a single-lane road barely a car length wide. Carmel Beach proper came into view next, where dog owners literally from around the world came to frolic with their pets. As a dog owner himself, and given the increasingly small number of places one could take a dog these days, Chris had to begrudgingly admit that it was nice to have access to such beautiful beach where dogs could run free. His own dog certainly enjoyed every opportunity to frolic in the sand and roll around in the smelly piles of kelp lining the beach. But Chris had stepped in just enough unbagged dog crap and chased off just enough wild pets and their owners to avoid buying into the madness of complete dog supremacy. As the whaler crossed over to Pebble Beach and into Stillwater Cove, Chris noticed a Coast Guard vessel tied up at the small pier next to a boat from the Monterey County Sheriff's Office. The pier was packed with emergency vehicles of various sorts, and many uniformed people were mulling around. Stillwater Cove was just over the line between Carmel-by-the-Sea and the private Pebble Beach development. It was a small harbor with little boat activity, save the handful of sailboats that moored just off the beach each summer. Activity like this was something one didn't see frequently down here. What's up, I wonder? Alex asked as he maneuvered the whaler into the small floating pier ahead of the official vessels. We saw these guys in the area when I brought Gretchen out, but there's a lot more happening now. Nodding back toward the officers standing near the sheriff's boat, Alex added, I know a couple of those guys. If you can wait a minute, I'll check it out. Chris was running on a fairly tight schedule, but the jarring presence of all this emergency personnel in an otherwise tranquil area intrigued him, so he took his time collecting his things. They found a body over in the rocks, Alex reported when he returned. No ID. It looks like he'd been in the water for more than a week. Huh. Another tourist washed out at Monastery? I haven't heard about anyone going missing, Chris said, recalling his own near-miss only two days before. There had been several incidents over the past few years in which unsuspecting tourists had been washed out to sea while walking along Carmel's beaches too close to the surf line. Most people repeatedly underestimated the power of the ocean. No, actually this looks like a boating-related accident. Remember that I did that marine mammal rescue internship last year? I saw a lot of propeller marks on dead animals. This guy looks just like those animals did. Not a good way to go. I'm not sure there is a good way to go. I'm out of here. Thanks for the ride in. I'm not sure yet if I'll be heading back out tomorrow. Gotta check with Peter first. I'll give you a call. Cool. I think I'll see if I can learn anything more about the body. I'll have my cell phone with me, so give me a call if you need a ride back out, or anything else. Later. 6. Chris grabbed his pelican case and began the wobbly walk up the ramp from the floating dock to the parking lot. After a couple of days on the boat, he could feel his body trying to readjust to life on solid ground. While most people who came out with them to sea had trouble getting their sea legs, Chris always found it much more uncomfortable to return to land. He preferred the feel of the Pacific's undulating swells underneath him to the unforgiving concrete on land. He dug out his keys and threw his case into the back of his vintage 1964 Land Rover 109 Safari Wagon. His father had cared for the forest green vehicle meticulously when he was alive and left it to Chris after he died. The elaborate roof rack and the hood-mounted spare tire gave the impression that a safari was imminent, though Chris generally kept the front two-thirds of his truck immaculate in homage to his father, 
The rear compartment was frequently cluttered with a wide variety of stuff, so we'd have to move a bit of gear around in the back to accommodate the case. Leaving the Yacht Club parking lot, he cruised slowly through the Pebble Beach golf course, avoiding errant balls, golf carts, and uptight golfers. After turning right onto 17-mile drive, he punched it and headed for the Pebble Beach slash Carmel Gate. The 17-mile drive was world-famous for its breathtaking views of the rocky California coastline. Transitioning from field mode to fundraising mode, Chris's attention was elsewhere, and he didn't think anything of the black GMC truck that followed him into the moderate traffic a couple of cars back. There were always maintenance crews and landscapers driving around both Pebble Beach and Carmel. Having grown up in Carmel-by-the-Sea, Chris had known these streets well for most of his life. He'd spent much of the late 1970s and early 80s with his friends Mac and Jace glued to his bike, riding like a madman through every street, secret path, and backyard the small city offered. He left New England and returned to the area at the height of the recent real estate bubble when property values were ridiculously high. The modest inheritance that he'd received at his father's passing had enabled him to buy a small, modern house on a street off the Golden Rectangle, home to some of the most desirable real estate in the area. The extremely private street hadn't even shown up on Google Maps. The two-bedroom, two-and-a-half-bath, 1,800-square-foot house sat back among the evergreens against one of Carmel's many small canyons. The furnishings were largely Ikea, which Mac enjoyed pointing out every time he came by. Hmm, he'd muse. Should I sit on the chair Nolson or on the couching Lurden? I guess it depends on whether we eat at the Fjallnes or the Tabling's daughter. The walls were generally spare, with selected photos and artworks from various interesting locations around the world, mixed with framed movie posters from some of the classics, Batman, 1989, The Sound of Music, 1965, and Reanimator, 1985 an eclectic mix that kept his guests on their toes. It was a comfortable home, neither cluttered nor too spartan. Around one corner, one might find a few scuba tanks, around another, a road bike. But there weren't any clothes on the floor or dirty dishes in the sink. It wasn't a bachelor pad, per se, but also clearly not yet a family home. A small outbuilding served as a locker and housed the usual array of important outdoor accoutrements, including road and mountain bikes, a kayak, long and short surfboards, and an odd assortment of scuba gear that, for one reason or another, wasn't at the CMEX's dive locker. All standard gear for the quintessential California boy. His time in New England had ultimately been interesting and productive, but for the ten years he'd lived there, he woke up nearly every day knowing he would return to California someday. Less than an hour after stepping off the McGregor, Chris opened his stainless steel front door and dropped to his knees to prepare for the furry onslaught he knew would be coming. The attack was first detectable by the distinctive sound of toenails desperately trying to get purchase on the redwood floor. Rounding the bandit full speed, his dog, Thigmataxis, leapt at Chris with tongue fully deployed. Good girl, Thig, such a good girl, Chris said while receiving a slobbery tongue to his left eye. Thig, named for an ecological concept that described an animal's attraction to its habitat, was a four-year-old soft-coated Wheaton that Chris had rescued from obscurity a couple years earlier at the animal shelter. She was the second dog he'd owned in his life, and he was hopeful that she would be around for a while. Good girl, I missed you. They ate together at the bar in the kitchen while Chris looked through emails. 
Chris had a frozen fruit smoothie, since he kept no fresh food in the house while at sea. Thig dined right next to him on kibble with a bit of brown rice. There was a note on the table from Mary, the neighbor who'd fed Thig while Chris was away, indicating that all was well. She was a friend of his mother's, and he'd known her for years. He picked up the phone and gave her a quick call. Glad you're back, Chris. How was your trip on the boat? We saw you out there during our morning walks the past couple of days. Any exciting discoveries? Mary was part of a group that walked the entirety of Scenic Way every morning like clockwork. At 65, she looked great, so the miles must be paying off. Ah, you know, some ups, some downs, about what you'd expect for the first week of a cruise. Everything okay with my furry pal here? No problems at all. She and Josie get along famously and both joined us each morning. Josie was Mary's Jack Russell Terrier. Oh, there was, you know, it's probably nothing. What's that? Well, several times I noticed a couple of men coming by your place in a black truck. They would just pull off the road in front of your house, look to see if you were around, and they'd back up, then drive away. The third time it happened, I walked out my front door pretending to be working in the yard so that they knew someone was watching, you know, in case they were casing the joint. Chris laughed. Casing the joint? Been reading more detective novels on your new Kindle? You know, I can't put that thing down. It's so much fun. I'm not sure I'm ready for that yet. I still like the heft of a book in my hand. The crinkle of the plastic cover from the library. What a romantic. You're going to make some woman happy one day. Chris laughed again. Oh, yeah, they're lining up around the block, and you're starting to sound like my mom. But seriously, thanks for your help with Fig. I'm pretty sure that I won't be back out on the boat for a couple of days. Are you around later in the week in case I head back out again? Not going anywhere. Why go anywhere when I live in paradise already? Can't argue with that. And thanks for the heads up on the guys in the truck. I'm sure it's nothing, but it helps to have a tent of eyes around. He was about to hang up when Mary added, Oh, Chris, speaking of your mother, have you met Mr. Mysterio yet? I wasn't aware that there's a Mr. Mysterio around. What's his story? Well, I don't know much. Mary clearly reveled in the opportunity to be the first to gossip about Margaret's new friend with Margaret's own son. All I know is that he's a doctor and that they've had dinner together a couple of times around town. Hmm, I'm sure I'll get to meet him at some point. Chris said with no enthusiasm. It wasn't that he had any problem with his mom seeking companionship. That was entirely up to her, and Chris would be happy for her if she found someone with whom she could spend some time. The issue was that Margaret's first foray into the dating scene after his father had passed hadn't gone very well. Against his mom's wishes, Chris had confronted the man and, in no uncertain terms, requested more chivalrous behavior. In vain. When you do meet him, Chris, try to be nice this time. We don't want to send another one running for the hills because he's afraid of you. I'm working on my people skills. I checked out some old Tony Robbins tapes from the library, and the exercises are going well. Her new beau will never know what hit him. That's what I'm afraid of. Talk to you later. He clicked off, then listened to his voicemail messages. Not surprisingly, the first call was from his mom, Dr. Margaret Black. She was a child psychiatrist who lived a few blocks away, and had a practice in a small office down at the Crossroads Mall off Highway 1. As per her standard protocol, she left no message. Marvelous. At least she didn't invite him to dinner with Mr. Mysterio. The second call was from Chris's boss at the CMEX, Peter Lloyd. Call me if you can before the Pebble Beach thing. We should talk about last-minute strategies before you go. Chris looked at his dive watch. 
about an hour before showtime. No time to call Peter now. He took a quick shower, shaved, and dressed in a blazer, tie, and a clean pair of jeans. Brown suede shoes completed the picture. Nice, but not too nice. Scientist chic, though he would never admit to thinking that as he looked at himself in the mirror. He filled Thig's water bowl and gave her a kiss and a few tummy scratches, grabbed the pelican case, and headed out the door. His landline was ringing as he walked to his car. He'd have to recover the message from voicemail later. Access to the exclusive development of Pebble Beach was achieved through one of four guarded gates. The guard waved him through after he explained that he was giving a presentation at the lodge. He arrived at the Pebble Beach Lodge with ten minutes to spare, so he had some time to breathe and consider the purpose of this particular donor meeting. The role of a research scientist had evolved significantly in recent years to require nearly as much fundraising as actual research. Much of this fundraising involved the traditional scientific pastime of writing grant proposals to agencies, like the National Science Foundation or Sea Grant. This aspect of the job hadn't changed much. Proposals were still submitted annually, though with the recent tightening of state and federal budgets, the competition for a shrinking number of grant dollars was growing. The ever-changing funding climate also required that scientists broaden their fundraising efforts to include private donors and foundations. Here the goal was to woo would-be donors for support that ranged from the low thousands to the millions of dollars. And most of the time, that came without the terms and conditions associated with traditional grant sources. Frequently, this type of private money came as the result of presentations to small groups or individuals, the proverbial dog and pony show. Presentations such as these required a different set of skills than proposal writing, so not all scientists thrived in both. Chris was aware of entire research institutes that had been endowed by a single individual after only a couple of casual conversations. A spontaneous poolside conversation in Palm Springs with the right person could lead to million-dollar research budgets. A few minutes in the frequent flyers lounge at any major airport could lead to a new science building. Knowing this, Chris made a point of taking advantage of every opportunity to speak to donors, even those opportunities that interrupted a research cruise. Of course, even if he hadn't been so motivated himself, Peter, who had demonstrated unparalleled skills at parting the wealthy from their dollars, would have had him doing these things anyway. So resistance, as they say, was futile. This afternoon's challenge was to sit at a table with three or four potential donors from around the peninsula and infuse them with the excitement of marine biological research, while at the same time conveying how important their donations would be to advancing this research. One had to simultaneously give the impression of having one's act together, but at this same time convey a poignant sense of need, a delicate balance. It was always helpful to have just stepped off the boat when attending these types of functions. The no-bullshit image of a field scientist appealed to many donors, probably because they had no other experience with field research than these interactions. Ideally, Chris would have loved to meet the donors at the dock as he literally stepped off the boat, though actually taking them out to sea was a gamble. A seasick donor could easily lose the motivation to give. Chris had seen it happen more than once. He left the Land Rover and found his way to the lodge entrance, bringing the field with him in the form of the weather-beaten pelican case at his side. Nothing said tough guy like a worn plastic case with strategically placed stickers. Through the entryway, he walked out on the main terrace where he quickly spotted Michelle Tierney, 
a representative from the university's development office. Development reps were the gatekeepers between donors and faculty. Meetings like this weren't allowed to happen without a representative present. While the presence of an intermediary was frequently frustrating, Chris had worked with Michelle before, and he actually enjoyed their combined approach. Further, it was Michelle who had single-handedly pulled these donors together today, so he was happy to have her there. Hi, Michelle. Chris nodded to a woman and two men seated at the table. Without catching Michelle's eye for fear that one of them would crack a smile, he added, I'm sorry if I'm a bit late. I just got off the boat. He received enthusiastic nods from all three donors for that. In fact, if you turn and look out to the left, you'll see our research vessel working as we speak, just over there off Point Lobos. He pointed, and indeed there was the McGregor, on sight and within view as planned. While you can't see it from here, we have our diving robot in the water right now, about 1,000 feet down in Carmel Canyon. He couldn't have choreographed that better. But before Chris could say another word, a tough-looking gentleman in his 60s queried, Dr. Black, if you're here with us, who the hell's running the show on the research vessel? 7. We followed him to his house. He was there for about 40 minutes before he took off again. He just walked into the lodge over here in Pebble Beach. He's carrying that yellow case. He sat at a table with three old people who looked like some kind of big shots and a younger chick. Right before we stepped outside, he pointed out to where the boat is working right now and said something, but I couldn't hear what it was. Shit, this is bad. We need to know who he's meeting and who he's talking with. Kevin O'Grady made no attempt to hide his impatience with his henchmen on the other end of the line. Well, we can't very well sit down at the table with him. Figure out what he's doing and don't get spotted. Kevin yelled into the phone. This last bit was intended for his boss's ears. After leaving Monastery Beach, Kevin had driven straight out to the property in Carmel Valley where his current boss lived. The valley extended inland from Carmel by the Sea, perpendicular to Highway 1. Carmel Valley Road meandered through farmland and small housing tracks, hugging the hills along the north side of the valley. About 14 miles out, after passing through Carmel Valley Village, the road narrowed as it wound up into the hills. The valley had several redeeming qualities, chief among them an abundance of sun when compared with Carmel by the sea and relative isolation, particularly the farther into the valley one went. In fact, the isolation was so profound this far from the coast that it was equally likely to encounter a wealthy land baron or meth lab operator. Kevin hung up the phone and turned to his boss to give a report, but didn't get a chance to open his mouth, much less form words. I don't like the way this is going, his boss said. I don't like it at all. The man swung around in his desk chair and looked out the window at the oak trees dotting the landscape. We've got to get control of this clusterfuck before our friends find out about it. I don't know nothing about our friends, other than what you've told me. What's their story? The moment the words left his mouth, Kevin regretted it. The boss stared at Kevin from behind his desk. He had the look of a predator sizing up potential prey, calculating the benefits of consuming the prey against the expenditure of energy required to capture it. Their story is nothing you ought to know about, the boss said at last, apparently having decided not to pounce on Kevin that day. You think I'm dangerous? These guys make me look like a pussy, and they don't like problems. So let's not give them any.
8. Very good question, but I am sure Dr. Black has left very capable staff in charge on the McGregor. Michelle interjected quickly. But allow me to offer some quick introductions before Dr. Black begins. Chris, I'd like to introduce you to Stuart and Nancy Dean, and I think you may have already met Dr. Henry Morris. Handshakes all around. Michelle had already briefed Chris on the relevant aspects of the Dean's biographies. Stuart and Nancy Dean, both graduates of the university, were relatively new residents of the peninsula, having recently moved from Palo Alto down to Pacific Grove. But they had been coming down for years and were quite familiar with the area. They were extremely wealthy and had already made donations to the university's new library, as well as to a couple of its sports teams. There were no surprises in the way the deans looked. They were both dressed conservatively, with nearly matching gray suits. Chris thought he'd caught the slightest hint of something curious in the way they looked at him when Michelle made the introduction, but that something was fleeting, and he quickly forgot about it. Dr. Morris, the pediatrician, was a lifetime resident of Carmel, and he dressed the part, looking like he'd stepped directly out of an outdoor catalog. While Chris had seen a different local doctor in his younger years, he was familiar with Morris and knew he had crossed paths with his mom on a number of occasions. It was rumored that he had a golden touch with children, but rubbed many adults the wrong way. Chris recalled his mom describing Morris as a true vulgarian, meaning, he supposed, that Morris used colorful language in mixed company. Well, it took all kinds to keep CMEX going. Far be it for Chris to let a character debate infringe on the pursuit of funds. It's nice to meet all of you. And to your question, Dr. Morris, I left the boat and ROV in the hands of our capable CMEX staff and students. While it's only me sitting here before you today, I want to emphasize that without our team, there would be no CMEX activities for me to brag about. I'm sure that given the long-time success of your practice in Carmel, sir, that you can appreciate the importance of a good support crew. Well said, Chris, well said, came the gravelly reply. I told your mother. Then he turned to the others. Dr. Black's mother is a well-respected psychiatrist in Carmel, and his father flew jets for United Airlines. Turning back to Chris, Morris continued. I was sorry to hear of your father's passing. He was a tough bastard, and we don't have enough of those around anymore. Thank you. It was true that Chris's dad hadn't suffered fools gladly. Ironically, one of the few fools he suffered was the doctor who worked with him when he got sick. Had Andrew recognized what an idiot the doctor was early on, he might still be around. Anyway, I told your mother when I saw her a couple of weeks ago that I was going to meet with you soon and that I was going to give you both barrels. He added, she thought that you could probably handle that. Chris laughed heartily, while the other three chuckled more tentatively. Both barrels is precisely what I'd expect from you, Dr. Morris. With that, Chris explained to the group over the next 45 minutes the long-range vision for CMEX and how its various academic and research programs furthered that purpose. You've done a nice job, Dr. Black, of singing the center's praises. Mr. Dean adjusted his blood-red tie. But we'd like to hear more about you. How have you come to be where you are today? What's your role been in the development of CMEX? Chris nodded, trying to buy time before answering. The personal line of questioning was a departure from the normal script of these get-togethers. Dr. Black has an exceptional record. Michelle jumped in to fill the brief silence. He's literally worked at locations all over the world. Chris, why don't you tell them about some of your international experience? 
Sure, Michelle. Well, uh, without returning to the Big Bang for the beginning of the story, do you remember Dr. Morris mentioning that my father was an airline pilot? Head nods from both of the deans. One of the most exceptional perks of his position was the voucher system that we, as his family, were able to use. I was essentially able to get on any flight that I wanted to any location that United Airlines flew, as long as there was an open seat. This meant that as an undergraduate at MIT back east, when I did a report on foraging behavior in coral reef fishes of the South Pacific, I flew to Fiji to dive with the fishes directly. Or when I wrote an undergraduate honors thesis on the management of the Great Barrier Reef in Australia, I flew down there to interview the managers personally and to dive on the reef. What a wonderful opportunity, Mrs. Dean said. It was. In grad school, I flew to Russia to dive in Lake Baikal for a class project. You are all probably aware that it's the deepest freshwater lake in the world. I did research in the fjords of northern Chile for one spring break and spent three weeks at Christmas one year studying white shark behavior in False Bay, South Africa. You must have been the envy of all your fellow students, Mr. Dean said. It was a unique situation. I was making little money as a teaching fellow in grad school, yet off I'd go to the exotic locales that many students only read about. It clearly changed the complexion of my education. We've heard that not all of your adventures were research-related, Mrs. Dean offered, that you've been in and out of trouble in some pretty rough places. Oh, there may have been some excitement from time to time, Chris replied, smiling. Mr. Dean interrupted. But Chris, we've heard stories that you've been involved in actual physical altercations in the field. Isn't that unusual for a scientist? Chris caught Morris giving the deans an impatient look. There are always challenges, but to this day I'm hugely grateful for the opportunities that my father's job afforded me. Those experiences launched me on what's been a rewarding career thus far. And yet, Dr. Morris said, with all this cosmopolitan international experience, you chose to return to the peninsula to found CMEX. What are we to make of that? An unrepentant homeboy? Chris chuckled. Something like that. In fact, coming back to Carmel served several ends. In many ways, the central coast of California sits at ground zero for the interface of science and policy in the state, the country, and even the world. Our extraordinary marine environment, coupled with forward-thinking management actions undertaken by the state, makes this the perfect place to do the type of applied work that I do. And to be able to conduct this research in my own backyard makes it all the more compelling from my perspective. I sacrifice nothing professionally to live in a location that's dear to me. So why Carmel Bay specifically? Mrs. Dean asked. Chris explained the rationale for the current ROV cruise and specified how the Carmel Canyon project was emblematic of the goals of CMEX. We're not content to conduct science for the sake of science. While every one of our projects is founded on enhancing our understanding of the marine environment, each project also has a clear application to management and or policymaking. It's this emphasis that distinguishes us from other institutions, both here in the region and throughout the state. Desperate to get out of this conversation, he brought it back on track. We've been successful with proposals to traditional funding agencies, but I can't emphasize enough how important donations from people such as yourselves are to CMEX, and by extension, to the marine environment. Surveying the group, it was clear that they had additional questions. 
He could tell neither of the deans was satisfied, and Dr. Morris was impossible to read through his mirrored sunglasses. The meeting had already lasted longer than any donor meeting Chris had been part of, but they talked a few more minutes as he fielded their questions. Looking at her watch, Michelle wrapped up the meeting, thanking everyone for taking the time to come discuss all the interesting work that Chris and his team were doing. Then she walked the deans out to their car. Dr. Morris remained behind briefly. He eyed Chris from across the table and behind his sunglasses as though he were scrutinizing a dead flower in the middle of his rose bushes. Chris, I've made a great deal of money over the years. I'm grateful for it, and I have no expectation of needing it when I'm in the ground. You know that I went to the university for both undergraduate and medical school. Your program is impressive, and I'm impressed with you personally. I want to help, but I have no stomach for traditional milk-toast bullshit, if you know what I mean. I think I do, Chris replied. After so many donor interactions full of pleasant yet meaningless generalities, he was enjoying Morris's continued frankness, despite the fact that he wasn't quite sure what exactly the good doctor meant. But his job that night was not to question potential donors' motives. His job was to garner their interest. And that he had. So, I want you to think about how I might help you in ways that other people or funding sources can't. I don't want to hear anything more right now. Just think about it. Here's my card. When you've had some time to think about this, give me a call. My direct line is written on the back. I wish I had supportive donors like Dr. Henry Morris and his friends. And it sure would be cool to work with Chris and his team exploring the wonders of the undersea world. The imagery that ROV provides is amazing. I always wanted to be a marine biologist, but then there was all that math. Anyway, it looks like Chris and his team didn't find anything to worry about on the ocean floor. And Kevin O'Grady and his mysterious boss have the wrong impression of what Chris is up to. I'm not sure that's going to go well, but you'll have to tune in to episode two of Into a Canyon Deep to find out. So don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so much. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms and our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.